0: We come to Job chapter 7, reading that whole chapter, the second part of Job's second main speech, Job chapter 7, God's holy and inspired word, give your attention to the reading of it, Job 7. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? like a slave who longs for the shadow, like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But The night is long, and I'm full of tossing until the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out fresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As a cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man, that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone until I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me but I shall not be. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So what makes food taste better, your bed softer, and a shower more refreshing? Well, it isn't salt or herbs, a fancy mattress, or a better showerhead. Now, there's one thing that does all three, which is hard work, particularly physical labor. After hiking, Fifteen miles, canned beans become mountain caviar. Eight hours of digging in the sun transforms the floor into memory foam. Once you've pulled asphalt shingles off a roof, a shower is a, a new lease on life. Yes, nothing makes the end of the day better than a good day's work. To reach quitting time, to get paid, this is what keeps you going in life. It's the good news after the trials and stress of work. But what if this was taken away? That is, you did the work, but refused pay. The bell rang, yet there was no dinner. You made it to bedtime, but there was no bed, and you couldn't go to sleep. What would this do to you? How would it change your life? All work and no play? Six days of work and no Sabbath? Just to imagine a life like this puts a bitterness in your throat and despair in your heart. And it helps you to understand Job a a bit better. So we are halfway through Job's response to Eliphaz. And as you'll remember, basically Eliphaz told Job that his intense grieving was becoming foolish. He was acting like an arrogant, roaring lion. You reap what you sow, and so Job had just better repent, and then he would have a certain hope that God would restore him quickly and magnificently. Job, however, countered with his sorrow, that, that his sorrow was heavier than all the sand of the sea. He wasn't a roaring carnivore, but he was a starving donkey, braying for food. Then Job chided his friends for being a treacherous waddy. A friend is supposed to show mercy and kindness, but all Eliphaz expressed was critical correction and reproof. Eliphaz merely piled up judgmental generalities against Job. And so he failed to see Job as a unique person with his distinct experiences. And Job pleaded with his friends to see me. He said, look at me, for his righteousness was at stake. And Job knows all too well what his vexation tastes like. Now, though, with the opening of chapter 7, Job Job shifts his aim. He was addressing his friends, but now he redirects his speaking towards God. Yet Job starts talking right at the Lord. Of course, when conversing with God, an etiquette of respect and deference is required. So Job begins talking at a distance. He doesn't point you at God right off the bat. Rather, he more obliquely refers or brings up a work a work of God. Job sends center, sends, uh, center stage an aspect of God's creation and providence. Man, he says, has a hard service on earth. By man, he means humanity. Joe points out that humanity's existence on this good green earth, earth is a strenuous job. Service here has the sense of toilsome and compulsory. It isn't man's choice, but God imposed this labor on humans. The Lord ordained for man and woman an arduous career. His days are like that of a hired hand like a slave who pants for cool shade or like a day laborer who hopes for his wages. This is our lot as humans. Job fronts two things here, though. One, God created our lives to be one of toilsome labor, like working in a vineyard all day or laying bricks in the sun. This is the sweat and back pain of our lives. Two, though, God gives us the relief of shade and a paycheck. There are break times on your work shifts. You can find the cool refreshment under an apple tree. We have the reward of getting paid so that we can pay the bills and buy a few nice things for ourselves. And by this, Job counterpoints Eliphaz. Eliphaz said that man was born only for trouble and that all evil comes from sin. Man's sin, and though this, this explains why he suffers. But Job retorts, not so. Life is hard by definition. Individual sin does not explain the labor of our days. Blisters and back pain is just how God made things for us. And yet, the Lord also gave us the joy of restful shade and a well-earned paycheck. The sun is hot, but it makes the shade all the more enjoyable. Job paints our life spot on here. However, there's a play here. Shade evokes refreshment, protection, even divine shelter in Scripture, but shade also hints at being short, ephemeral, and small. Shade is there at noon, but gone by one. Likewise, a day labor getting paid at the end of the day was proverbial for abuse. Employers often shank their workers by not paying them. I don't have the money today, I'll get you tomorrow. And Job capitalizes on the double sense. For he says, I have inherited moons of emptiness. Nights of misery are assigned to me. The evenings that are meant for rest have been proven deceitful for Job, as they impart no relaxation to him. Indeed, he says he's plagued with insomnia. He goes to bed, and all he can think about is when he can get up. He tosses and turns all night like a treadmill that won't turn off. He's hungry for a good night's sleep, but all he tasted was restlessness. In fact, in the ancient world, nocturnal restlessness was the classic motif for intense suffering. Good sleep is one of God's best gifts, and to exchange this for anxious turning of an insomnia was a cruel burden from above. Therefore, Job asserts not only that life is hard, but that God has taken from him the little blessings of rest and sleep. Job labored but didn't get paid. His shade vanished. Instead of sleep, insomnia torments him. And he goes on to tell us one of the reasons he cannot sleep. He says his flesh wears maggots like pajamas. His skin is covered in clogs of clay. Job's Job's hide cracks open like the desert flow and then oozes with pus and blood. What a gruesome existence for Job. His own body is infested with cockroaches. Maggots crawl up his legs and down his neck. No wonder he can't sleep. And this swarm of maggots leaves Job like a threadless loom. The image in verse 6 is not about swiftness. In fact, it's anachronistic that a weaver's shuttle was fast in, the, in Job's day. Loom, uh, Loom's technology back in Do- Job's day was very slow. Instead, the picture is one of fleeting and trivial So also the word for hope in the second part of verse 6 also means thread. Thus he compares his day to a loom without thread. How can you make a blanket without thread? It has no purpose. It is useless and pointless. A threadless loom is no good. And so Job expresses that he is confined to hopelessness without thread. He has no hope of things ever improving. His shade is gone. His paycheck is not in the mail. Hope is an essential ingredient to good mental health. We need hope to be sane. To lose your hope bends and breaks you as a person. Hopelessness paints everything gray and drab. It is life without color, not even black and white, just grayscale. Thus now, Job speaks directly to God. He prays, he calls God to remember, Do not forget, O Lord, that my life is breath and that my eyes will never again see good. His days are as ephemeral, are ephemeral and insubstantial. Like the wind, his life blows in, and soon it will be no more. Indeed, he is certain that he will never know happiness again. Hopelessness and despair, these are textbook signs of deep clinical depression. All is ugly and sad from here to the grave. With this, Job counters Eliphaz again, who just told him just to have hope. He said the poor always have hope of restoration." But with his maggot, maggot insomnia, Job is despondent in his poverty. Things will never get better for him. Yet Job aims as the Lord at the Lord, so that the Lord might hurry up. He next refers to God as the one who sees him, verse eight. And the word here is actually a title used for God, used by Hagar in Genesis 16. There the Lord blessed Hagar and she responded by praising the Lord for being the God who sees her. This is the sight of God that is one of protection, kindness, even friendship. Job asked his friends to see him as a person and now he pleads for God to do the same. So God tells or Job tells God to hurry up and see him. For if God doesn't look at him soon, he will be gone. Look before I am no more, he says, like a cloud that fades and vanishes. So is Job. If he dies, if he descends into Sheol, he won't rise up again. The dead do not return to their home. If a shade returns to their community, nobody would recognize it. Now, Job's point here is not about a denial of the resurrection. Rather, he's reflecting on the permanence of death, that death is final in this age. Once you die, it's too late to receive God's help. The time for God's gracious sight expires in Sheol. And by this, we see that Job understands that his vindication must happen in this life. The Lord must see him and vindicate him in this life, for once death bites, it's too late for vindication and restoration. Now, from a New Testament perspective, we may judge this outlook to be somewhat limited or to fall short a bit. And yet, when you're suffering for no reasons and your friends are saying, just repent, this makes sense. You need to be vindicated in life before you die. Therefore, Job declares that he will keep speaking to God. He will not stop talking to God even though God is not looking at him. And the language of verse 11 here is profoundly psychosomatic. Anguish of spirit also means or can mean restricted breathing, and bitterness of soul also means a sour throat. Job's throat is sore. He can barely breathe, which reflects his bitter soul and agonizing spirit. The bodily pain stabs your mental health as well. And yet this persistent talking to God is a sign of devotion and commitment. Infidelity curses God and gives him the silent treatment. This is what Satan bet that Job would do. But Job shows his commitment to God to be unwavering. A loyal soul keeps praying to God, even when God is not looking and when he's playing the foe. Note the next verse. Job says, am I the sea? Am I the dragon? This is a mythic illustration. For the pagans, the god of the sea, Yom, and the sea serpent, Leviathan, were the chief nemesis of the god of the heavens. Yom and the dragon fought to topple the God Most High. And so the Lord put a fence around the sea to keep it from being too chaotic, and he imprisoned the dragon with a chain in the great abyss. And so now Job asks if he's the sea or the dragon. For the Lord put a watch, a prison guard on Job, as if he was enemy number one of God. Job keeps talking like a friend, but the Lord acts like a foe and rival of Job. This, we can see, is the sharpest grief that stabs Job. Yes, he feels the sting of his dead kids, the ache of losing everything, but the most crushing agony for Job is that his dearest friend God is treating him like an adversary. Job keeps speaking like a friend. But God has locked up Job as if he was the sea serpent. And the prison of God again refers to the night. Job was sure that he'd get a bit of comfort from his bed. A little time as a couch potato would ease his complaint. But his bed was a false hope. When Job finally does fall asleep, when his insomnia loses to pure exhaustion, God terrorizes him with dreams. He torments him with nightmares. You have likely had a bad dream that you cannot get out of. You know it's a dream, but you just can't wake up. And so the night terrors hound Job. The Lord torments him with evil dreams. When Job is awake, all he wants to do is fall asleep. And when he's asleep, all he desires is to be awake again. It's so bad that Job said he would prefer to be strangled. Suffocation and death are more pleasant than the horror movie dreams of his. He loathes his life. There's no way he wants to live forever. His days are but a puff of air. And so for the little time left, Job tells God to leave him alone, verse 16. Yes, he orders God, let me be, cease, desist, stop it, God. Please leave me alone to have some alone time. And with this, Job switches his imagery. In verse 8, he wanted God to see him with grace to vindicate him. But now he pleads for God not to see him. Yet it is possible for God to see you and not see you at the same time. For the Lord can look at you in different ways. And to make his point, Job now alludes to Psalm 8, verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him? You're familiar with the verse, what is man that you are mindful of him, making him a little lower than the angels. In Psalm 8, the question is one of wonderment. The psalmist marvels that God took itty-bitty man and crowned him with glory. Job, however, turns the question of amazement into one of complaint. He doesn't negate the truth of Psalm 8. Rather, he exposes the darker side of this truth. Sure, it's nice to be on a high pedestal, except... Everyone can see all of you. God made much of man, but with greatness comes responsibility, and with responsibility comes stricter accountability and judging. Thus Job says next, God inspects man every morning. He tests him every moment. The Lord's judicial gaze gives um, constant job reviews that are heavy and unbearable. In God's sight, there is persistent testing and grading and no gold stars. In God's judging eyes, you have no clothes. And so Job pleads with God to look away. Stop gazing at me. Please just look away long enough so that I can swallow my spit. To gulp down your own spit is one of the briefest activities you can do. But Job doesn't even get time to do this. He drools uncontrollably under the painful scrutiny of God's testing and inspection, but the Lord won't even give him time to swallow. Talk about rough. And so now Job pleads for forgiveness. Now the text of verse 20 is difficult. It can be read as, If I have sinned, or... I have sinned. Either Job is admitting that he's not perfect, or he's wondering what his sin may be. But either way, the force kind of is the same, for we ask next, what did I do to you, God? The point is, what sin of Job is great enough, heinous, and directly against God? What high crime did Job do that God made him his target? What felony was so bad that Job is now a burden to God? Clearly, Job does not know. He is sure that none of his sins deserve the tormenting punishment that God is dealing out. The punishment is way out of proportion to any of the small imperfections of Job. And yet he pleads for forgiveness. He says, why does God not pardon my transgression? He says, bear away my sin, Lord. Job prays here for forgiveness for any sins he might be ignorant of. He's confident that he hasn't sinned, for sure no bad sin. He doesn't think he has anything to confess, but just in case, he says, Forgive me, forgive me, please. Remember, everything around him looks like the Lord is cursing Job. His loss, being a social outcast, maggots eating his flesh, the insomnia, the night terrors. What else do these spell but God's curse? And so he cries for forgiveness. If he sinned in any big way, indeed, he says, I'm lying in the dust. To repent in dust and ashes, this is the classic posture of a humble and contrite spirit before God. He is dying under the judicial vision of God, and so he begs to be seen in forgiveness and pardoned. And Job urges God to be quick about it. If God is slow, he will seek Job, and Job will not be. Last verse of the chapter. Here he returns to his point in verse 8. He says, I will be gone, dead and no more. Job knows that once death comes, it's too late for forgiveness. God must pardon him before he is no more in the land of the living. Thus, it's not death that scares Job, but it's to die unforgiven, to perish without restoration or vindication from the Lord. Indeed, part of Job longs for death. May he sleep in the grave to end his maggot-infested insomnia, to be free from the dudgeon of nightmares and yet he must be forgiven or vindicated beforehand. Job pants to be reconciled to God in life, for he knows that if he dies unforgiven or not vindicated, if he perishes under his curse, then the curse may be permanent. Death with forgiveness is gain, but death with unforgiveness is everlasting law. Therefore, what is Job essentially lamenting about to God here? Well, he cries that God is all law to him and no gospel. His judicial scrutiny won't give time Job time to swallow his spit. And Job prays for the gracious sight of God. He must hear the gospel, but all he has is restless nights and dreams of hell. Thus, by Job, it is clear that God can look at you in two ways, either by the law or by the gospel. And when God peers at you by the law alone, you get the torment of Job. God's judgment steals your sleep and infects you with evil dreams. Your days are pain and nights agony. Maggots eat your earwax, and mud covers your body as if you were buried alive. And so Job's chief loss here is his loss of God's favor and grace. Job keeps talking to God. He has remained loyal. Job didn't forsake the Lord. He even asked for forgiveness for sins that he might be ignorant of. And yet in return, the Lord won't look at him in grace. The Lord has forsaken him. He will not look on Job with a smile. While Job is a friend, God has become his enemy. And the wrathful face of God is terrifying, agonizing, and unbearable. Job must be delivered from the law of God. He must taste the gospel before he dies. Let death come, but not without pardon or vindication. Job's life is fading fast, his days are but a breath, and God must look on him with favor soon before it's too late. And at, at, at the same time, Job then asked God to see him and not to see him. See me no more in the law, but look on me with good news. And with this, we get a window into the soul of Christ As he hung on the cross. For Christ was the bosom son of the father. He was eternally faithful to his his father. The father and son are perfectly one. Jesus never did a thing to displease the father. His food was to do the father's will. Favor and love is all the son ever knew from the father. And yet, as iron spikes held Jesus to that tree, he felt nothing but law from the Father. Insomnia and nightmares tore at his flesh. Jesus suffered the curse of God for sin, even though he was free from all sin and impurity. Indeed, this is the highest mystery. For those dark hours between noon and three, the Father saw Jesus as a foe. Jesus' soul was embittered by the wrath of the Father. The Father was silent while Christ kept talking until it was finished. Unlike Job, Jesus was perfect in righteousness. And also unlike Job, Christ had to die under the displeasure of God. Job needed to die with forgiveness or vindication, but Jesus died to earn forgiveness for you. Indeed, because it was all law for Jesus, he earned for you total gospel. In Christ's righteousness, there's no more judgment for you. In Christ, the Father no longer looks at you naked by the law, but he sees you robed in the garment of Christ. Moreover, the Father so loved you that he gave his son to die for you, and he gives you the word so that you can regularly hear the gospel. In the word, the Father frequently and often declares to you the good news of your pardon and your justification. Therefore, your life and your hard service is not quite like Job's. For in the gospel, you have the constant shade of God's grace. Sure, insomnia... Nightmares and painful sadness will come upon us. The reasons for our guilt or grief can be numerous. Sometimes we haven't a clue why we're suffering. But no matter, you always have the comfort of the gospel. And with the gospel and grace of Christ, you never lose hope. The hopelessness of Job you do not taste in Christ. For in him, you have a living hope of resurrected life, that you will not die without the forgiveness of Christ, but that he holds you in his hand and he never lets you go. Praise the Lord then for the gospel of Christ. Thank God for the righteousness of Christ, for there's no hope without it. Thus, amid our life, Amid our toils and sweat and long days, may you never stop listening to the gospel so that we might praise God through all the times of life, sweet and bitter, fast and slow. Amen.